Well, please turn with me in God's Word, if you will, to Luke chapter 10. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that starting on page 868. We're going to read a rather large section of Scripture, and I'm going to read it all at the beginning, and hopefully, maybe possibly by the end of the service, uh, the reason will be made clear. Uh, But we're going to start in verse 17 and read through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 17 through 42. Beloved saints, this is our God's word. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless... Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me, by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, that is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and, and he saw him and passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching But Martha was distracted with much serving. 
And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So ends uh, our reading of God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. Our gracious Father, you know our hearts and you know our minds, how we struggle to believe your words of comfort, how we are often quicker to believe the enemy's lies than to believe your truth. Father, if we're honest, sometimes your grace sounds foreign to our selfishness, beyond the realm of plausible, simply too good to be true. So Father, we ask you to help us not to to judge as if we were the... standard, and you were the one in in judgment, help us to judge our doubts according to your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to just how high and inexhaustible your grace truly is. Do this as we meet you in your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, at first glance, this looks like a very long passage to deal with in one sermon, and probably looks like that at second glance and third glance as well. There's so much here. The Good Samaritan, Mary and Martha, Satan falling like lightning from heaven. How could I possibly deal with all of these in one week, and why in the world would I want to? Good question. The answer is simply because I think these three sections go together. Each of these deals with a common misunderstanding about how we relate to God. The first deals with thinking that that doing mighty things for God is really what matters. The second deals with believing that it's our good works that, that get us into heaven. And the third deals with the idea that what really, we think that what really matters to God is how we serve Him. And these ideas are, are common to us and they're closely related to each other and they're all born out of this idea, this belief that what's important to God is what we have to offer Him. Or that our relationship with Him is built on what we do. And so to each of these, uh, the response that Jesus gives is, is that what we need is more of Him. And we need Him more than He needs us. And that we, what we need to do is learn to bask in His, his goodness and His love. And so my hope as we look at at this passage this morning is really just to to drive this one idea home. God wants you to rejoice and take comfort not in what you do for him, but in what he has done for you. God wants you to rejoice and take comfort in what he has done for you, not in what you do for him. And so what we're going to do is see that the true source of joy is not doing mighty things, but having our names written in heaven. We're going to see that the way to eternal life is not what we have done for God, but what He has done for us. And finally, we're going to see that the proper response to these truths 
is to learn to sit a little bit more at our Savior's feet and bask in his goodness. That's what my hope is to do this morning. Last week we looked at how Jesus sent out the 72 uh, to proclaim the goodness of the gospel. They went out two by two, and and he told them that that as the world sees, he sent them out in weakness. He said, I send you out like lambs among wolves. You think, thank you, Jesus. He said, take no money, take no extra clothes. Make no arrangements for where you're going to stay. And oh, by the way, you will not have power to change the hearts of those who believe you. Some will rejoice and some will reject you. We saw last week that their ministry, our ministry, is shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. And yet there's a danger here. The temptation is to think that what we see is the whole story. We see this weakness and we see this this powerlessness from our perspective and we think, well, that's all there is to it. That because we see no power, there is no power to think that the visible reality is the only reality. And so his disciples are are, are quickly amazed to realize that that's not the case because as they go out, they soon saw that there was great power, that the demons themselves obeyed when they ministered in Jesus' name. And Jesus' response was that he even saw Satan himself fall like lightning from heaven and that he had given them great authority and that they were under his protection. But then he quickly cautioned them that that should not be the cause for their joy. That their joy should flow from the knowledge that their names were written in heaven. That they were children of God and therefore heirs of heaven. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we're going to admit that there's something attractive about wielding power over demonic forces. Uh, The disciples kind of sound like the first generation of Marvel superheroes as they go forth exercising these powers over these unseen demonic forces. And it's attractive. We romanticize it. We desire it. But as Jesus says elsewhere, what, is, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Power is nothing if you have no peace with God. And so he wants them to learn to desire what truly matters. If you wield power over demons but your name's not written in heaven, what, what, what joy is there? And if your name is written in heaven but, but the demons don't obey you, what do you have to fear? But I think there's something deeper going on. Because it's so easy to get pulled into the mindset of wondering what we are doing for God. We look at the, at the world and the ravages of sin. We look at the masses who are rebelling against their creator. Those who are wandering blindly toward an eternal cliff without a seeming care in the world, and we think, something has to be done. God needs me. The church needs heroes that will, that will run into the fray and, and join the battle. And it's not that these concerns aren't valid. We ought to have a heart for the lost, and we ought to be bold for our faith. But if we're not careful, we will fall into the very dangerous delusion 
of thinking that God needs us more than we need Him, that we are in some sense His Savior, His Rescuer, as we go out. Look what Jesus says in verse 21. He rejoices that the Father has hidden the truth from the powerful and revealed it to His children. Does that sound like a God who is wringing His hands, wondering who will come to His rescue? Does that sound like someone who is needy and helpless? And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he rejoices to see that their eyes have been opened, that they recognize who he is. They have been given gifts that God has withheld from kings and prophets. And that ought to be the cause of their joy. And it's into this context that a lawyer approaches Jesus seeking to put him to the test, verse 25. Now that ought to be our first clue that something's wrong. Uh, Aside from the obvious commands of Scripture not to put God to the test, this tells us something about this man's heart. Because he sees himself as the one who already holds the answers, the truth, and as Jesus is the one who needs to prove himself. You ever have a student in your class who asks a teacher or the professor, which has nothing to do with curiosity, but simply trying to prove how much he knows, this is that lawyer. He sounds humble. What must I do? But he's anything but humble. Because he's not asking out of a true desire to learn. He thinks he already has the answers. And he's seeing Jesus uh, as the one who has to answer. He wants to see if Jesus is on the same page. But more than this, he starts with the assumption that there is something he can do to inherit eternal life. The very idea that God is so holy that even this lawyer's best works are as filthy rags before the holiness of God has never entered his mind. He assumes that he knows what it takes to get into heaven and that he is able and ready to rise to the challenge. He's a lawyer, an expert in the law. And so Jesus asks him, what does the law, what does the law of Moses say? What does God require? The man shows that he's no intellectual slouch. He, He quotes the first and second great commandments, the very same ones that Jesus often quotes. These, Jesus says, are a summary of the the whole law. Love God and love your neighbor. Everything else hangs on these two. And so whether the lawyer realizes it or not, his answer could be restated this way. If I want to earn heaven, all I have to do is keep the whole law. And Jesus' response is simple. You're right. So go do that. Keep the law perfectly. Don't fall at one point. Not one stray thought, not one stray word. Keep God's law perfectly at every point, at every moment. And yes, if you do that, God will gladly welcome you into heaven. Now I hope you know what the right response would have been at this point. Something along the lines of what uh, what Peter said in chapter 5, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Have mercy on me. I can't do that. 
Had the lawyer done that, he would have known the glory of God's grace, the beauty of God's forgiveness, and he would have left there a changed man. But what Jesus said went right over his head. His desire was still to justify himself, to to prove himself righteous before Jesus, before God. And so he asks a very lawyerly question. Just to be clear, who is my neighbor? Whom exactly is it that I need to love as myself? Now, Jesus could have quoted the law, the same law that this lawyer has just quoted, because Leviticus 19, that says, love your neighbor as yourself, goes on and explains who it is that is the neighbor. It's basically anyone you come in contact with. Uh, Moses says, if it's, it's the foreigner who's among you, you love them. God's already defined who your neighbor is, those whom you come in contact with. But Jesus takes a different tactic. He doesn't say that. Instead, he tells a parable, a well-known parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was a man going from Jerusalem to, to Jericho. And on his way, thieves fell upon him. They beat him. They stripped him. And they left him half dead. A priest one entrusted by God to care for the afflicted of Israel, comes along and there's an afflicted person. But he went to the other side of the road and walked around. A Levite of the priestly tribe came by. Like the priest, he doesn't stop. He doesn't help. He also goes to the other side of the road to avoid him. But then a Samaritan comes. Samaritans were treated terribly by the Jews because Samaritans were neither Jews nor Gentiles. They were of mixed ancestry. They were born of intermarriage between unfaithful Jews and Assyrians during the exile. Had they been full-blooded Gentiles, they would have been more respected by the Jews more tolerated than these half-blooded traitors. So they were mocked, laughed at. They were ridiculed and spit upon by the Jews. Never treated as brothers, never treated as friends, never treated as equals. They were constantly reminded that they were inferior and that they were despised. Can you imagine how someone treated so poorly might have felt at that moment? All the things he would have been tempted to say to that man lying in the ditch. How does it feel to be the one in need now? Ha, you got what you deserved. Or... I'd love to help you, but you wouldn't want a filthy Samaritan touching you now, would you? Because that temptation for vengeance when you've been mistreated all your life is instinctual. It's as natural as breathing. 
No one would have blamed the Samaritan for responding that way. But it's not how he responded. He had compassion. And he tended to this man's wounds. And he laid him on his animal while he himself walked beside. And he took him to an inn and he rented a room. But his compassion just kept going. He gave the innkeeper two denarii uh, to take care of this man. This man. That's two days' wages. Two days of labor that he, he gives up for this total stranger. And he promises to pay whatever other expenses arise. It's sacrificial love, and yet it's more than that. Because this man, we were told, was half dead. Had no one stepped in, he would not have survived. The Samaritan didn't just help, the Samaritan saved his life. All of this for a complete stranger. Worse than a stranger, a sworn enemy. So what was it that drove him? Simple, really. It's how he would have wanted to be treated. He loved this injured man as he loved himself. Isn't that what the law requires? And what is the law but a reflection of of God's character? And that's, beloved, what this parable is all about. The typical approach to this parable is to see it as a command that Jesus is saying, this is what God requires of you. Who's going to be a good Samaritan? That's certainly how the lawyer heard him. Here's what I need to do. Here's what God requires of me. If I can just do this, heaven will be mine. But Jesus is answering the lawyer according to his folly. If you think you can love sacrificially, give life, and earn eternal life, have at it. But what if that's not really the point of the sermon and of the parable? What if you're not supposed to see yourself as the Samaritan? What if you're supposed to see yourself as the one half dead and in need of rescue? What if the lawyer's problem was that he didn't understand that Jesus wasn't the one who needed to prove himself to the lawyer, but the other way around? Think about all that the Samaritan embodied. He was both Jewish and Gentile, stuck between two worlds. He was despised and hated by the self-righteous religious leaders of Israel. And yet he helps those who mistreat him. He gives up two days of his life for a stranger. He pays debts that are not his own, past, present, and future. And he gives life to the dead. Do you see who Jesus is describing? It's himself. He's not telling us what we can do for God, but what God has done for us. 
He's telling us that, to, that inheriting eternal life is, is not about our obeying the law of God, but the God of the law coming to show us kindness and to pay our debts and to give us life. Getting to heaven is not about how good you are, but about how kind God is. It's all about his love. And that's what we struggle to understand. And that's the point that's driven home in the final episode. Because after talking to this lawyer, they entered a town and stayed with two sisters, Martha and Mary. And as Jesus spoke and taught, Martha bustled about the house serving uh, all who were there. Mary? Mary just sat at Jesus' feet, hanging on his every word. And Martha went to Jesus with her concerns. She wanted Jesus to tell Mary to help out. Or very possibly, she wanted to make sure Jesus saw just how much she was serving. Did did he see how much she was doing? What would he ever do without her? And really, this is no different than casting out demons or keeping the law. What would God do without me? See how much I'm doing. It's that constant human belief that God needs our works that what distinguishes people from each other in God's eyes is what they do, how they serve. That what matters most is what we do for God, not what he does for us. And that leads us to being busy, thinking that the universe is is hanging by a thread and that we are single-handedly holding it back from darkness. We are all Martha's by nature. Even if we're lazy, we loathe ourselves for it and believe that we should be doing more and that God needs us to do more. These three episodes hold together because they confront this mindset and they point us to Jesus. So Jesus responds to Martha by saying, you are anxious and you are troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Anxious. She's not at peace. She's she's worried. She can never be still. She can never just stop because she doesn't understand what the Lord requires of her. She, She thinks... He requires that she never stop. She always serve. But the one thing that he requires is that she recognize that she is the one in need and that true joy is found in having your name written in heaven. That the way to eternal life is found not in what you do, but in what he has done for you. And those that understand this, they possess the good portion. They possess Jesus. And he will not be taken from them. Beloved, I'm not suggesting that God doesn't call you to respond in faith and obedience. The book of Luke is not just about Jesus. It's about our call to be uh, remade in his image and to be like him. 
Jesus is the one who sent the 72 out and gave them the power to cast out demons. Uh, The law tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. The problem isn't doing those things. The problem is when we invert and prioritize what we do for God over what he has done for us. And so sometimes we do need to learn to be still. We need to learn to receive. We need to learn to marvel at Jesus' kindness. We need to learn to be content to be loved by God. And to bask in his goodness. Mary has learned this. And Jesus is not about to take it away from her. You see, this this passage, this rather long passage, addresses these three common misunderstandings about how we relate to God. Thinking that doing mighty things for God is what matters. Believing that, that good works get us into heaven or that what really matters is how much I serve him. And Jesus responds to those misunderstandings with, I have done something greater by writing your name in heaven. I have served you at great cost to myself. And I delight when your heart delights in me. Is it any wonder then that every Sunday we end at the Lord's table? At the end of the service, the Lord doesn't say, go fix me something to eat. He says, I have prepared a table for you. More than that, it reminds us of the price that he paid in order to save our lives. He sacrificed two days of his life and so much more to pay our debts past, present, and future. To rescue us from death and to give us life. And so he calls us to sit at his feet and to bask in his goodness. He calls us to rest and to receive him, him the good portion. He assures us that our names are written in heaven. And he swears that those who have chosen the good portion shall not have it taken away from them. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, you know us. You know our misunderstandings that are common to all of us. How we think that you're impressed by great acts. How silly it is that we believe we can be worthy of heaven. The idea that you're more impressed by our service than our awe of you. And so we thank you for your word, which gently, patiently, and faithfully corrects our misunderstandings and points us again and again toward you. Teach us to sit like Mary at your feet, amazed and captivated by your love and your grace. And help us to again marvel at your mercy and to rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Amen.